Welcome to Shop Talk Live, Fine Woodworking Magazine's bi-weekly podcast. I'm senior web producer Ed Pernick, and joining me today are executive art director Mike Bagovich. Hey, guys. And special projects editor Asa Christiana. Now, Sniffly Mike is I appearing... Do, I a, do have the sniffles, I apologize. Yes, he's appearing in a bubble boy suit since <laughs> he is from California originally, and there have been rumors that he is unvaccinated for a variety of illnesses. Uh, so if he sounds a little bit like this, you'll know why. Um, so, as always, if you like this podcast, spread the word to your fellow woodworkers. Maybe go over to our iTunes page, leave a five-star comment. Four stars are okay, too. Heck, you can leave a one-star if you really think we stink, but I'd rather you didn't. Uh, or just go to iHeartRadio and do a search for Shop Talk Live. So, I have a sub- segue topic I'd like to address because um, Dr., in air quotes, Matt Kenny continues to make fun of me for the fact that I bought an old Stanley 55 hand plane. However... For good reason, I might add. <laughs> well, Mr. Does, Fancy Pants... Does everyone know what a Stanley 55 the, We is? talked about it on an earlier podcast. It's, mm-hmm. It was their, like, do-everything multi-hand plane. Like, you know, you can pull beads on it. You can do moldings, tongue-and-groove joints. It does everything, right? So after the phrase, jack-of-all-trades, yeah. usually comes the phrase... Pain in the... Master of none. Master of none of them. But... I was building some uh, drawer, false drawer fronts for a bathroom vanity uh, that I put together with you, Asa, in a video, and I finished putting it together at home. It's in my bathroom now. And I wanted to wrap the drawer fronts in cock beading. So I just pulled my finest bead, uh, my finest beading iron out of the Stanley 55 chestnut original box, mounted that baby, ran about eight feet of, uh, of, of you know, beaded molding, and then ripped it off at the table saw. Beautiful. Wonderful. Not a speck of tear out. So what was the, the diameter of this bead? Uh, it's probably <laughs> on the order of three sixteenths. Oh, I have one of those router bits. Yeah, I know, but it's not, it's not as much fun. Okay. And I do believe... Did you sharpen? The, did you have to sharpen? Did you, I sharpened them. You tuned up the... Oh, yeah. Like you have a little circular hone or something and you... Well, uh, I actually... What I do is I, I flatten the back like conventionally on a stone, right? And then um, I do the bevel the main bevel, the right. freehand. And then uh, to get the little cove that you're referring to, I wrap a dowel, an appropriate yeah. size dowel in sandpaper, and I just... And that worked. Works beautifully. I mean, doing a little bead is probably one of the things that that tool it does great. Uh, can do fine. But there's, you know, it's, it's the least challenging of the tasks Absolutely. you would ask that tool to do. Absolutely. But it does introduce, because you're pulling it by hand, you know, it does introduce, I, I, I would argue very subtle inaccuracies that I think that that you, are good that you pick up yeah and you it want makes that. it look more handmade yeah for Whereas sure a router bit it's just too perfect well when we had uniform. the drunken woodworker on yeah. the other week he was saying you know if you want to come up with your own YouTube channel you can't just say I'm gonna woodwork you gotta have a niche your own shtick there's your shtick Oh, the you could the be 55 the Stanley man? 55 guy. And every week you just do a different molding. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the whole episode would be about 30 minutes. And you'd spend that 30 minutes like setting and adjusting and putting this thing in and then sort of like giving up there right are at people, the end and right. walking away. Right. Like every single episode. That'd it's, be awesome. And I think your, your uh, podcast could be called I Can't Drive 55. Nice. I like that. That's awesome. See? Boom. There's a concept. You're a marketing master. <laughs> Somebody can take that and run with it. Holy smokes. All right. Well, with that, so, you know, 
uh, P-I-S-S off, Matt. This is a family show, so I can't actually say it. <laughs> um, all right, let's go to our first question of, uh, of the day. It comes from Jay Gallo uh, of the famous uh, wine family. Nice. Uh, this must be Julio. Uh, I have a question about refinishing a bay windows. Now, let me just preface this. This is more of a home building question, but eh, what the heck? We, all, we, work, we all work on our houses, too. Yeah. I have a question about refinishing a bay windowsill made from veneered plywood. It seems to be damaged beyond repair from leaving the window open during a rainstorm and overwatering plants. I'd say that's your problem right there, Jay Gallo. Uh, stop leaving the window open during rainstorms. Too Anyhow, late. I digress. The veneer is lifting and curled up, and there are deep water stains and spots. Looking at the picture, would you suggest I try to remove the veneer and re-veneer it? Or try to flatten it the best I can, removing any finish that remains, and then veneer over top of the original plywood. I have zero veneering experience, and I'm afraid if I try to Perfect. remove the existing... <laughs> <laughs> nice. Good place to start. <laughs> Keep talking. Just jump right in. <laughs> I'm afraid if I try to remove the existing veneer, I'll have a really big mess on my hands. Chances are, yes. Uh, so. All right, short. Yeah, so he's got... It's, yeah. it's a veneered plywood, uh, big bay windowsill, and it's shot. Yeah, and, so... Uh, for starters, um, this is commercial plywood with commercial adhesives in it that are not reversible. And um, so this isn't like uh, an old historic veneering job with hide glue that you can reverse the veneer and peel it all off of there with heat and moisture and, and then replace it all and do the job right. Once, Nor is it a fine piece of furniture. No. And once, uh, once commercial plywood gets delaminated like that, that sickness is all the way through that plywood, uh, at least all through that top layer. The parts that he sees peeling up are just the tip of the iceberg. The bond has been compromised all over the place. That's a good line. He said the bond has been compromised. Has been compromised. But it, so that's got to come out of there. There's no fixing that. And it gets back to a point that I've encountered a lot as a woodworker who likes to work on my house. And I know that this Mike's had the same issue where we are a little bit afraid to just tear stuff apart because you don't really know what's in there and you've never built a bay window Sure, you try to before. go with the least invasive fix. Right. Contact uh, contact paper shelf liner. Ooh. There's your answer, Jay Gallo. <laughs> just put Done. that horrible... Nice floral yeah. pattern. So what happens is we often go over and ask our friends at home building, and they're like, dude, just you got to tear that out of there and do it right. And that's the answer. And once... And I'm... You know, once I do that, I'm always happy that I got in there, did the full surgery, pull pull that whole piece out of there, and rebuild whatever you need to rebuild, uh, so the thing um, is really sound. Yeah. You wouldn't want to try to put something over it or even try to repair it. That's just going to be a recipe here's for here's problems. The other thing, it's going to end up being easier to take it out and put it back in because when you take out the existing piece, you have your template right there oh, for yeah, the new piece that new you've piece. got to cut. Yep, so exactly. it's, I mean, it's probably a matter of popping off a little bit of molding off the front, mm -hmm. um, prying it up and, you know, starting anew. Yep. And there's one other suggestion for a fix, a different tact you could take. This Get yourself a, a little Dremel tool with a little straight bit. Um, and just, you can, that you can engrave really well into the plywood. Right. And just like right across the bench, just oh. right. Ode to a window seat on a rainy day with the windows open. Oh, wow. And just accept that this is sort of that patina of use oh, and age. Oh, this is installation art. 
It is. Yeah. So this just becomes, you know, why fight life? Why fight time? Why fight nature? I think the subtlety of your art installation is going to be lost on many viewers. And I think they're going to say, boy, that's that's a piece of crappy uh, window seat. I think it would be lost on the spouse most definitely. It would not be lost on Yoko Ono, I would argue. If she's your spouse, I would give it a try. If not, (laughs) replace it. Um, All right. Uh, you know, interestingly So don't enough, be afraid. That's the bottom, bottom yeah. line is, as a woodworker, yeah, you don't know how window seats go together, but get in there and find out. And then down the road, you'll, you know, you'll always know what went into that. And if there's ever another problem, you won't be afraid the next time to get into the next project. Right. On. But when you do take out that windowsill, interestingly enough, I have this habit when I fix stuff in my, in my own house and I take, you know, I take apart a, a wall or whatever. I don't know why but I always write a note on the inside of the wall before I seal it back up. Like, you know, Ed Pernick changed this blah, blah, blah on this date. And, you know, Ed lived in this house with his wife, oh, so-and-so. Cool. And it, I don't know why, because I love finding stuff like that. When I find stuff like that, I love it. I get a kick out of it. You're reaching for yes. immortality. It, what's got it? Yeah, I guess. Part of it. Yep. We yeah, all have that know. impulse. By the way, you may find money in there, too. That's another good reason to open it Absolutely. Up. And also the biggest reason is... You know, typically we, as woodworkers, we have a way of turning small projects into really big projects. Mm-hmm. We call them craft projects. Yeah. Well, when John Tetro, when he first, he's a art director on staff, when he bought his house, he said, oh, Mike, yeah. can I take Friday off because I'd really like to paint the house, paint the rooms before we move in. <laughs> it's like, no problem. So he came in on Monday and he said, you get everything painted? He says, no, not really. I ended up ripping out the drywall in no, every single room in the plaster. house. plaster. Yeah, so it, he was like, he went from painting a house to like ripping it down to studs and it became, you know, I don't know, a multi-month project. Oh, many months. Yes. Yeah. All right. Let's head into our next question. This one is very thoughtful. It's from Derek who writes, enjoy your show and am a subscriber as well as an avid listener to the podcast. I have a great shop. I have lots of tools that most people would love to have. Like most kids, I took shop class for three years and walked away with a good amount of knowledge of machinery and woodworking, but I do not have talent. Or so you say, Derek. I had the same thing happen with wanting to be a photographer. I bought an expensive camera, and it really did not improve my photo-taking quality at all. How can I get the basic talent I need? I have some stuff that has come out great and and some stuff that is just garbage. You talk about planes all the time, and I have a couple, and I've never used them successfully. A random orbit sander fixes all my mistakes, frankly. And then Derek included two photos of two of his projects. One is a pepper mill, and uh, the other one is a built-in bookshelf. Both of which, I would argue, uh, display uh, you know, a decent amount of skill. The guy Absolutely. He can build stuff. Yeah. And so I think it's, a, it's not that he has no talent at all. I think that he's inconsistent, right? And I know Asa was like chomping at the bit to, to go in depth in this question. He has his – he's holding you his sound head. sound really excited He's holding his for chin my answer. On, his, on, his, on his fist, looking very <laughs> pensive. <laughs> I'm like, pensive hmm. right now. I'm, hmm. I'm loading up. Really? Hmm. Well – I love this question. Indubitably. I, I love it because I see this all over the place. You see people show up. I play soccer all the time. You see sh- people show up with the most expensive gear and the fanciest shirts, and they don't actually know how to play the game. They forgot that. They've forgotten that it's not so much the tools, but it's the fundamentals. And there's a ton of parallels between photography and woodworking. So in his 
and, and that's why I love this. We actually all shoot photos um, as part of this job, and it's really a beautiful sort of complement to the woodworking. It's uh, I, we talk a lot about how it's not all that different. There's craftsmanship and there's craftsmanship, you know. Yep. But um, you know, it's the same exact thing. If you don't understand fundamentally what's happening with your camera in terms of, you know, a a, a lower f stop means a bigger aperture means it, it, yes, it'll let in more light, but it shortens the depth of field. And if you don't sort of understand all that stuff, like how your camera's working, the most expensive camera can help a lot, but it's not really going to fix that problem. And then the second thing with photography is just becoming more educated about what you're looking at, like how light plays across things. So just starting to understand what good lighting is versus bad lighting and how to achieve that. So there's some fundamentals to photography. It's the same with woodworking. If you just, it's not, it's really great to have great tools for sure. It takes away a lot of the frustration. But if you don't understand, just take his hand plane analogy for a minute. If you don't understand what constitutes a sharp blade, you know, that it's two polished planes, not just one, and what polished really means and how to get there, and you don't know what's happening when you attack wood grain with a hand tool, you know, the grain itself. Those are fundamentals. You could take the oldest, rattiest plane and get it tuned up and get amazing, pretty amazing results if you know those two things, how to sharpen and how wood grain reacts. Right. And uh, it's really about so much more about those fundamentals of physics and engineering and your materials and stuff than it is about owning the most expensive tools. Um, we see that again and again and again as you go into people's shops. Um, yeah, so I love this question because, uh, yeah, okay, I'll stop talking. Yeah, no, I think the the point is, and one of the, the challenges is there's no one big thing you need to know about woodworking. Right. There's like a billion little tiny things that you need to know, and it just takes a long time to acquire the knowledge of, of all those small things. When I was in... Um, in furniture making school and college, probably the the most informative um, project uh, that we were tasked with when we first got into a, a machine shop is we had to take a two by four of a certain length and mill it flat and square to certain dimensions, thickness, width, and length. Pretty simple. How do you take something and make everything square? But just in that single project, you knew you had to learn about joining, planing, servicing, square edges, cross cutting, ripping. Um, and that was just like a, a huge, uh, education in a simple project. And then the second, probably most important single thing I learned how to do was sharpen a chisel. And between those two things, getting stock straight, square, and flat, getting an edge tool sharp, that's sort of a good foundation. So I guess the, the question, you know, what you're looking for is probably not, um, it's probably a bunch of little things, uh, you know, read the magazine, start with a project you want to make. Let that project guide the information you need in order to make it. Okay, so I want to make a, a table with a drawer. Awesome. Okay, find a table with a drawer. Then at every step in the process, okay, I need to mill my lumber or I need to choose lumber. Great. Find an article online or from Fine Woodworking Magazine or anywhere else in a book about lumber. Let that guide you. And then... Um, from there, every step of the task, you should be able to find some information. And by the time you make this first piece, 
if you really stop and look for, you know, that full Monty of information about that one thing, as you go along, that one first piece of furniture is going to take you a long way in your skill set. Yeah, I, I actually think, sorry, uh, Ed, go ahead, Ed, jump in. I didn't want to. I was going to suggest also that he, um, some of these skills you really only learn by standing beside someone. So you, you might want to take a class of some sort, number one. And number two, you have to start, I would think, you need to start immersing yourself uh, in furniture. So what does that mean? Um, I used to go, you know, when I lived in Pennsylvania, uh, I went to the Nakashima compound a lot. And, I, I, and I'm just using that as an example. You could, you know, insert any, anybody's name here. And you'd knock around furniture. You'd get on your back and look at it underneath and from behind and from the top. And you'd feel how everything went together. And that in and of itself, I think, uh, really helps you gain an understanding of, of design and, and symmetry and asymmetry and what have you. Um, so I, immersion. That's I would thing. add a couple. This is a really fundamental question. It gets to the mission of this whole entire podcast, which is to try to get people, move them along in their woodworking uh, life, you know, or and get some people who aren't introduced to woodworking introduced to it, you know. I, I, it's complicated because there are different learning styles. I know that from being a teacher that some people learn they need to see the overarching concept first, um, and then they can the rest of it falls into place. There's other people who don't learn that way. They learn little bit by little bit, and uh, it's all concrete. It's all tiny example after tiny example after tiny example, and that's the way they assemble the info in their mind. But So it's not one answer for everyone. You need to kind of know uh, what kind of a learner you are. If you're someone who really needs to stand next to someone and see their hands actually do it, then go do that. Yep. You know. Um, but I would say that some of the mistakes I see new people make is they try to run or even walk before they can crawl you know and so like mike said i agree with mike that there's a billion things that you need to know or let's say there's a thousand really important things you end up knowing but they start as you learn them you realize they start to hang together into a few fundamental groups you know there are some groupings in there and one of them is all the skills you need to square up your lumber. Like Mike said, if you can, you, you're always going to have problems. And we see this again and again. If you haven't, don't first understand how to get one surface straight and flat and then plane the other surface parallel to that one and then the, uh, the last two edges and then cut it to actual length and have everything actually be super close to so 90. So we're talking about reference surfaces. Right, because everything else will be a struggle after that. And it's the same right. with hand tool use. We always come back to sharpening. If you don't, if you have those two things, if, if you can make square work pieces and you know how to either sharpen your hand tools or just avoid hand tools if they're giving you that many, much problems, honestly... Right. Um, you're going to be so far down the road. There are some, I, I kind of think of them as gateway skills, you know? And so, uh, yeah, so it's a big it's, answer. It's giving the, the finger in the air. Wrap yeah, it up, yeah. boys. Wrap it up. So, yeah. <laughs> All right. It's time to move into our first segment of the week, and that's going to be Smooth Moves. What would you do with a brain if you had one? Where we cop to our most boneheaded moves in the workshop. Um, I, uh... I got a biggie this week. Uh, is yours? Would you consider you had you had something? 
I'm going to let you go first because I okay. feel like mine is going to devour yours. <laughs> I think it will. Mine's real quick. I've been working on some home carpentry stuff. It's not furniture making. But like we were saying before with the bay window replacement uh, of this of this sort of sill in there in that bay window, um, uh, we all end up working on our houses a lot. And right now I'm um, putting tile in a bathroom where there was just sort of vinyl flooring before because tile's way nicer. And... Like anything you do for the first time, you have to really be patient with yourself. Like, it's not going to be perfect. Um, interestingly, I had a guy from home building come over with, with, and do the first one to, uh, together with me. And now I'm on the second one on my own. But even that, uh, you know, it's the first, there's a lot to take in. It's the first time I'm ever doing it on my own. So when I was cutting off... I needed to cut off the bottom of my door trim and different trim. Ah, oh, you're doing the, the old flush cut right. routine. Right, so, but it's before the tile goes in. So right. how high do you cut it? All the base molding can just come out. That's all out. But the stuff, I didn't want to pull down all the door moldings, right. you know? So I just wanted to cut those to the approximate height I would need to be able to slip the tile under there. And then you have to account for the, the adhesive, the thin The set. adhesive. So I over... I rushed a little bit, and I was super struggling, and I didn't also didn't have the right tool, and so I was in there with chisels and saws, and I uh, and I just knocked the crap out of my molding, and um, it was like a bad haircut. Like one side got <laughs> one side got chopped a little too high, then I chopped the other side high. To even now, I've got a good three eighths to a half of an inch. Yeah, a little caulk in there. A lot of caulk. So, but I was kind of I was rushing. What I really could have done is stopped, borrowed the right tool. The right tool would have been one of those multi-tools. Those little flush trim guys? Yeah, with the little flush trimming yeah. bit. And I could have sat that right on a piece of tile and gone right in and flush trimmed that right to the right height. But instead, I tried to do it with the tools I had. So it's a dumb move. Now I have to figure out how to fill this giant gap on top of my tile. And I'll figure it out, but it sucks. And uh, don't rush. Don't rush. Uh, well, uh, in the don't rush category... Um, I was rushing yesterday to build a uh, a prop for an upcoming video. It's a jig. And so what I had to do was I, I laminated two pieces of three-quarter-inch plywood together. And I glued them together, but I also attached them together with drywall screws so that I could keep working while the glue was drying, right? So I've got a couple of squares, thick squares made out of plywood, and I've got to cut a – make a – I have to make a 45-degree cut down the middle of this thing. So I took out the cross-cut sled, and I set the workpiece on it, and then I screwed down a couple temporary fences to hold it, you know, at an angle to the fence. And I made sure I, I'm, I'm looking at it. I'm like, yep, okay, all the screws are out of the way. Good. And then I start making the cut, and <laughs> sparks everywhere. Oh, no. Nasty sound. Yeah. Now, um... I uh, I was rushing, and I didn't account for a screw that was in the other side of the workpiece. Whatever. Um, <laughs> oddly enough... Whatever. I'm an idiot. Whatever. <laughs> uh, the plywood melamine blade that I was using is totally fine. But then again, it's carbide tipped, so I guess that's why. But I have to talk to our shop manager because the we have a saw stop, and it did not trip on the drywall screw. So hmm. i, I got to figure out what's going on there. But... Um, yeah, that's yes. kind of weird. Like, why it? would the saw stop not trip on that drywall screw? Well, the instructions say if you do get sparks or something, you've obviously hit metal and it didn't fire. Mm -hmm. 
test it with a fleshy appendage and see if it <laughs> fires then. Right. I always <laughs> carry a hot dog in my shirt pocket. That's funny. I don't know because, I don't know, years back I did, I hit an errant drywall screw myself and, you know, it did not fire. And I thought, oh, whew. I wonder if there's something to do with the conductivity of the metal used in drywall screws. I don't know. Maybe so it's not conductive enough. We should know. actually reach out to the guys at SawStop yeah, and ask curious. if there's something about drywall screws. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm going to do that. I'm going to, I'll send somebody an email. I'm just I, idle curiosity. Yeah. Because um, it sure has fired on lots of other yeah. things. Yeah, no, it has. Because yeah. um, using the, that table saw, the saw stop, you know, one fear is that you actually cut your finger off, but a far bigger fear <laughs> is being the guy who fires off that cartridge and ruins a blade. Yeah. And, and a cartridge. have to and, live that yeah. down because everybody in the office is going to know that you're the saw stop guy. Yeah. Yeah, and, we could name all of them for you right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, the, yeah, again, the moral of the story is uh, did, you can't. You can't rush, especially when you're using machinery. You just cannot rush. Mike, you said slow down to speed up, right? Isn't that something that you said? Or maybe I heard it from someone else. But it's like, that's, that's a, yes. so true. Yeah, you, so true. You don't get anything done faster by rushing. Absolutely. All right. Moving, because uh, Mike has been a perfect woodworker for the past two weeks. Yeah, I'm not no, going to, uh, no, I'm just going to say... I don't want to jinx myself by saying I did not have a smooth move. Let I'm me just, knock on. Thank you. I'm there just you saying that whatever smooth moves I came across since the last podcast are not coming to mind at this moment. And I, mine would have devoured yours anyhow. <laughs> uh, so, okay. Next question. It comes from Eric. And Eric writes, I'm designing an oval tabletop in cherry. And I had thought about adding a half inch to three quarter inch wide bird's eye maple inlay two to three inches in from the edge of the table. So uh, to help folks imagine this, think of like a, a federal-style dining table, okay? As I was designing this tabletop in SketchUp, two questions came up. One, creating the recess. Let's, let's tackle these one by one. The first question is, creating the recess for the inlay with a template and a router seems like a simple matter. Can you offer some recommendations for a method that's efficient or cost-effective to create the wide, curving inlay itself? Actually, both of these questions are connected, so I'm going to go ahead with number two. So how to create the, the inlay. Two, is this a good idea to apply such a wide inlay, or will I face wood movement issues across the 22 to 24-inch wide tabletop? So how does he cut that inlay to go in, in there, and is he setting himself up for disaster? Um, like I said, this was a common technique in federal furniture, but that tabletop would have been all veneer. He's talking about right. a solid cherry top and then inlaying veneer in that. Well, I think the way to avoid, you know, too many problems with wood movement in this issue is that uh, this little um, oval inlay that, that's going in, I would probably set that up so the grain of that little inlay is running perpendicular to the path of the oval, if that makes sense. So you're basically cutting these, and I would make little sections, I don't know, four to six inches long of sort of, you know, cross grain pieces that would sort of fill out this oval. So basically as it's going across the, um, that end grain section of the oval, um, basically the, the grain of your inlay is in line with that, which is the, the area of greatest movement. And then as you get to the long grain sections of the oval, yeah, your grain is going to be running perpendicular, but you're only worried about that width of that veneer, which is a half to three quarters of an inch. I think that's kind of a non-issue. 
so how do you go about making these little pieces, you know, with that, with the proper arc to fit the oval? I would probably make some sort of, um, at least slightly over, you know, a quarter section of your oval. And you could do it one of two ways. You could make a template, which is in essence, exactly the size of the inlay that's going to fit in there again with your, your template and router bits and all that, and just use that to overlay it onto a little piece of your veneer and mark it, cut it from there. Or you cut you, it with a knife? Uh, depends how thick you, you want to yeah. go. I if mean, it's you, thin, you cut it in successive passes with sure. a razor. Yeah. You know. um, I mean, you could bandsaw it. You could figure out a way to route it. It's a really good problem. It's one of those things. It's a great illustration of some things are easy to draw on paper or in SketchUp yeah. and far more difficult to execute. Uh, execute. And, you know, you're saying, oh, I'm, I'm drawing in SketchUp. I got this little 3D thing. This looks all great. Hey, I'm going to add this cool little detail when really that cool little detail, which is maybe an afterthought in the design, suddenly becomes the major um, challenge when it comes to constructing a piece. Yeah, and a whole other way to look at this is just ask yourself the question of uh, why are you putting in such a wide inlay? I would suggest that that may look great, but it may also, sometimes we see inlays that are too wide and they kind of look like a big racing stripe. Um, this is a good reason that like in a solid wood tabletop, people would use a much thinner inlay. You could cut it with a really thin um, router bit and then you could just drop basically stringing in there which would be flexible so the the, fle the flexible stringing would go right around the path no problem and that's easy to cut with sort of like a glorified um, mortise mortise uh, gauge you know like a marking gauge like turned it. into a cutting gauge basically yeah um, so you could or however you make stringing or you could buy stringing um, and that's what people would do sometimes and I think the stringing would be okay uh, with the move wood movement but you know can, I would as an alternative, consider uh, putting in something thin that could just bend around the curve. Mm -hmm. All right. Shall we move on? Moving on. All right, moving on. Uh, Dave writes, I'm starting on the journey of learning to do hand-cut dovetail joinery, and I'm looking forward to building fine furniture in my pending retirement. My question has to do with where to go next to expand my chisel collection. Currently, I have a basic set of Marple's chisels, and I think I bought that I think I bought at Lowe's several years ago, quarter inch, half inch, three quarter inch, one inch. They seem to work well now that I've acquired the necessary sharpening stones, etc., and learned techniques from FWW to sharpen them. I'm sure the higher end chisels from Lee Valley and other manufacturers would be great, but where should I go next? Those are not cheap, so I want to choose wisely. Are there certain sizes I would use more? Quarter, three eighths, half inch. Should I buy chisels for chopping, paring, etc.? You guys have provided an abundant amount of advice on hand planes in the podcasts, but I don't recall a lot of talk about chisels other than the different types of steel. So he's got a basic set of marbles, chisels, which, I mean, they probably need to be sharpened more often than a higher-end tool yeah, steel. Yeah, they're perfectly but that's fine. Right. The steel fine. is just not going to be as good as the steel on a higher-end chisel. Yeah, Dave is... is Dave, you've taken the exact path I would recommend for anybody um, getting into handwork and chisels, which is start out with a basic set that isn't going to cost you a lot of money. Uh, number one, you're not going to be afraid to learn how to sharpen these. You know, you're not going to say, oh, I don't want to sharpen them. I don't want to ruin this really expensive tool. Get in there and sharpen it. And just because of the fact that it might be slightly softer steel, well, you get more practice sharpening. Um, the other thing is you get to know the, the tool. You kind of know what you want to do in woodworking and 
what set of chisels you need. And this set you mentioned, uh, quarter half, three quarter one, great basic set. Ace and I were talking earlier and we both agree. Throw in a, a three eighth inch chisel in there as well. That's a really good set. So where do you go from here if you want to step up? I really think you've got... A six sixteenth <clears throat> would be good too. Or six sixteenths, okay. Thank you, Ed. Um, I would also say that I there are times when I really love having an eighth inch chisel, like a really small chisel. A but anyway, right. moving on. Right. So where are we going in, in the type of chisel? Um, if you want to step in, in quality, I think the the two basic options are Western style chisel, uh, which is similar to this uh, the type you have right now, um, uh, high carbon steel, A two steel. Uh, this even the PMV11, they basically all represent um, just a, a basic a bench chisel. The other way to go is to go with the Japanese style chisel where it's a laminated steel, a little bit harder edge. That edge is going to last you a little bit longer if you use it right. If you don't use it right, if you do a lot of prying and stuff and really beat up on it, that edge will fracture and that can be problematic. Um, in terms of the, the type of chisel, get a, a basic set, and you don't even have to start with a whole set. Start with a size chisel that you use a lot. I think probably maybe either a quarter inch or half inch chisel. Those are probably the two that I use most often, followed by three quarter inch. Um, get one. Get it sharp. Um, see how you like it. Um, I went, when I was looking to step up on my chisels, I got a high quality western chisel a bar chisel um a sort of hand forged chisel and then i also got a japanese chisel bar is b-a-r-r -R. yep and i thought well i'm gonna see which one i like best and then get a set of those i ended up liking them both for different reasons and ended up getting sets of western chisels and japanese chisels what i'm using today is uh, my technique has sort of improved and evolved to the point where whether I'm chopping or using a chisel by hand, I'm, I tend to try to pair, tend to take thin slices. Um, if you work in this manner, your chisels are going to stay sharper a lot longer. And uh, Especially so, if you don't pry chips out of there really hard. Exactly. Or you know, just making big, heavy chopping cuts in the center of a board without removing any of the waste first. And so... Um, it's so I'm, I'm basically I've migrated to using Japanese chisels basically about 95% of the time right now. Mm -hmm. Would I recommend it for someone to jump right in? I said, no, don't go in. They can be somewhat expensive. Um, get one. I'd say get one. Get a Japanese chisel. Mm -hmm. See if you like it. Mm -hmm. And then from there, uh, Lee Nielsen, Lee Valley, um, they all make nice chisels. Mm -hmm. uh, There's a lot that are a step up from what he's got, um, like you bought some Stanley Sweethearts. I mean, there's a lot of chisels out there that um, are a step, uh, you know, there's a small step up from marples, and then there's bigger steps up from mar marples, yeah. and they're mostly <clears throat> about the steel. But by the way, those marples chisels, if they're sharp, will cut as good as any chisel. Yeah, it's just how long is that edge going to hold That's up? That's all it is. Yep. All right. Well, I say we move on to our next segment of the day, and that's going to be all-time favorite technique of all time for this week, where we drop to our knees and shed tears of joy while singing the praises of our most cherished, beloved woodworking techniques. So I hear that Mike apparently has an epic all-time favorite technique of all time for this week. I do. Could epic. be all-time favorite technique of all time. Oh my gosh. Not just for this Not week. Not just for this week? 
So my buddy Sean wanted to make uh, a set of uh, arts and crafts dining chairs, basically that Kevin Rodell design we had in the magazine a while back. Beautiful chair. Chairs are a pain in the butt. One of the biggest reasons they're a pain is because the side rails on the seat, they tend to angle back. So, you know, your chair seat's wider in the front, narrower at the back. That's easy. And there's a lot of ways to go around doing it. Do you angle the tenons? Do you angle the mortises? Do you do slip tenons? How do you do that? Well, the whole trick here is I wanted to figure out a way that we could tackle all of this joinery easily on the table saw. So I was thinking about it and I thought, well, the easiest thing to do is to just, just drill um, straight mortises in my legs which meant I needed to figure out a way to make an angled tenon mm. um, on my side rails. So I started by just to be able to cut my side rails to length with the proper angles on the ends of the piece. I made this little wedge about four inches wide, 12 inches long, inch thick on, on the widest. And then basically I angled, I made this wedge equal to the angle that I wanted my side rails to tilt Yep. In word, Off of the went leg. Back. <clears throat> so I made this little block. I stuck it on my crosscut sled and made it easy to cut my side rails with the right angle on the ends. So then I went to um, cut the cheeks and I said, oh, I still have this wedge. Got the wedge, yeah. So I stuck this wedge against my tenoning jig and <gasps> lo and behold, I cut my tenons exactly to the right angle. Whoa. So now we need to cut the shoulders. Because the shoulders are going to be straight. Yes. So They're square to the workpiece, not angled like the tenon, right? They are 90 degrees to the tenon. Right. Oh, they're yeah. right, right, yeah. right. That's right. So I put this wedge back on my crosscut sled, <gasps> and I cut my shoulders exactly to the right guy there all with the same wedge all with the same wedge would you call it the wonder wedge that is one wonderful wedge. this is the wonder wow. wedge. so as i went along in this process everything every component to this angle i kept saying to myself i wonder if the wedge would work with that too and it turned out this wedge does <gasps> like 50 million things and i did not have to set up a bevel gauge i did not have to transfer any angle i did not have to tilt my table saw blade once i did not have to tilt the table of my bandsaw because i was able to use this wedge for various items for getting rid of waste and all this it worked it was like amazing so i built an entire chair by making a single wedge and using it to make every cut and i was talking to bob van dyke who runs connecticut valley school of woodworking you know, Bob, I, I came up with this awesome technique and I, I went through this process of explaining to him. He just kind of looks at me, not really impressed. He goes, oh, that's, you know, that's the master wedge technique. And you did not invent that. It's, you know, maybe 200 years ago, but probably not. It's probably been around longer than that. The it, master yeah, wedge. Yeah, so it just kind of let all the, the wind out of my sails a, a little He's bit. He's making but, that up. So um, anyway, I, I, I happened upon a technique uh, which has evidently been used, you know, by many woodworkers for years. But it was nice because it, it was that that sense of personal discovery, and it's one of the great things I like about woodworking is you get in your shop and you come up with these solutions, and most of them we get from reading and learning from other people. But every now and then we come up with something, we stumble upon a truth, and it just, you know, it makes sense and it works. And that's another um, good line for today. We stumble upon a truth. Yes, I like that. So, and it worked out really well. So the wedge, so as to use Bob's phrase, I, I stumbled upon 
the master wedge, which master I do wedge. think is one of the most brilliant techniques of all time. That's great. That's amazing. Not do you have to one, be confused Ed? with the master wedgie. No. I, that's what I received nice. in fifth grade. <laughs> um, and that's I, uh, a, an old-time uh, universal truth, truth as well. <laughs> uh, you I, will get a wedgie in fifth grade. I, uh, I don't have one this well, week. Well, good, because I have one that I'll apologize in advance. It's probably going to make some people angry. Uh-oh. Um, uh, I, it shouldn't. But... Um, we Ed and I were just doing a video on. We realized that we've talked about the 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 Domino Joiner by Festool. Oh, great! That was supposed to be a surprise. <laughs> we've talked about uh, it. It the secrets out. Ed and I just did a Domino video together. Um, we talked about. We've talked about the Domino. We've shown it in the magazine when it was first invented. We we talked about it. Um, we've had recent articles where. Uh, people show how to jig it up for doing angles and different stuff like that. There's some pushback against the domino, which is a really interesting topic maybe for another podcast about why is there pushback. I think partly it's that there's only one company you can get this thing from. Partly is it kind of feels like cheating. It's not real woodworking. It does It's not real woodworking. Partly it might be that the the big domino, the XL, the 700, I think it's called the, dom- the Domino 700 it, or XL, is $1,250 for a handheld power tool. Not including dominoes. Not including dominoes and some other little accessories you can buy. But um, all that being said, <laughs> uh, you need a way to cut mortises um, in your shop. And I would say, especially if you ever plan on becoming a pro, you better find a way to cut them uh, quickly. Because that could be, if you're sitting there drilling and chopping and trying to make a living, you can forget it. So most pros you'll see in their shop, they have some kind of an XYZ horizontal table, or now they're switching over to dominoes or whatever. Anyway, we were using the domino. And I got to tell you, you know, you were saying you drop down on your knees and start crying moment. Say what you want, say it's expensive, say it's cheating, say whatever you want. That Domino XL was a drop down on your knees and cry moment using it. Just the technique of using it. I know it's a tool, not a technique, but the technique of using it, it's got built-in stops. You're instantly making big, massive tenon uh, matching mortises for super deep for with for super long big fat tenons that you could use to make anything a workbench a huge dining table just about everything you've ever used a mortise and tenon for you can now do as quick as you would cut a biscuit slot it's unbelievable um i really can't get over it and this is the mike wallace moment yeah go ahead this is the mike wallace moment we've all been waiting for i'd like you to explain the brand new mercedes-benz parked out in your parking spot in the taunton (laughs) Uh, parking area. Yeah, can well... You, can you explain that? I did... Do you understand what I'm alleging here? I did steal the Domino XL, and I do have it at my shop. Is that what you're saying? I'm saying you have been paid oh. for your efforts to sing the praises of this tool on Shop Talk Live. This is a disgrace. <laughs> well, no, I bought that Mercedes myself. I've been saving up for a long time. <laughs> no, uh, I Get know... out! It sounds like I'm kissing the butt of one particular tool manufacturers, but I got to keep it real and All say right. that... You know, you don't have to buy one of these to have happy woodworking, and but it is 
stinking amazing. All right. Uh, okay. <laughs> and let the blowback he's come also, in. He's also wearing later hosen all the time in the office now. Um, festival. Well, one. German. Okay. So here's the thing. Oh, yeah. Okay. Domino's great. Yeah. We we were talking about this the other day because there there is a big thing. It is a great tool. Is it woodworking? Is it not woodworking? I don't care. I'll, you know, whatever tool gets me to the. You know, the means to the end or the end is more important than the means, whatever. But I was just working with John Benson today on an article that's coming out in, in an upcoming issue by Hank Gilpin, who's one of my favorite furniture makers. Awesome designer, Amazing. awesome craftsman. This entire article is eight pages of, it's sort of like the decorative mortise and tenon joint. On, you know, sort of the, the through mortise and tenon, but beyond just cutting it off flat and putting a quick chamfer on there. Everything you can do with this joint as a both structural and as a primary design element in a piece. Yep. And to me, I, I think that's the biggest thing against something like the domino, where in essence you're hiding the joinery. When a lot of what a lot of people do, myself included, what I'm drawn to woodworking is, is about the making, the combination, the structure, the strength, the joinery as a decorative element. So I think that's the only place a domino falls short is it it's really it's a very efficient means to it join falls short two for pieces. you <coughs> yeah but uh, you know i it's a good debate about the domino i would yeah, but what's the, wait a minute uh, yeah. what's the what's there to to debate you enjoy using it mm-hmm. mike not so much uh some people a lot of people in the woodworking community online are going to poo poo it and continue to poo poo it big fat hairy deal mm-hmm you you do what you do and you do you do it however you want. You cut a joint however you want. Who yeah. cares? But Mike's making a substantive no, no, absolutely, point about what you can and can't do with a domino, sure. yes. which yes. is beyond just opinions and philosophy. The truth is you cannot make a right. through wedged tenon, you know, with the domino. But yeah. I would say you can make a and I haven't tried it, but it, this is the fun thing. When when a new tool is invented and this is a new animal, it takes time for people to explore all the possibilities. I would say you could blow through the backside of the workpiece, maybe with some kind of a backer board there, have the tenon come all the way through, the mortise come all the way through, make your own tenons in like a contrasting wood or whatever, and even throw wedges in the ends of those or whatever. You'd have like a little oval-shaped, you know, rounded-ended tenon coming through. I don't know if that would work, but it seems theoretically fine. But no, it can't do all the things that a master craftsman can do with a tenant. Absolutely. Especially visual tenants that come through the other yeah. side and they're visual. I think it's a tool that if you use it and embrace it, it will, it will inform the way you design and construct furniture. Right. right. So, okay. Moving on. Another question. This one comes from Sean who writes, Ed, in a recent show, you mentioned you purchased a set of Stanley sweetheart chisels. I too have purchased a set of my own and like everything about them, except the handles. I can't get them to stay seated in the sockets. Maybe it's because I live in L.A. where there's little to no moisture in the air, but I doubt it. I'm thinking about giving epoxy a try. Have you experienced this issue with your set? Have you tried to epoxy your handles? If so, how did it work out? Any tips for success that don't involve gluing my fingers together would be greatly appreciated. Uh, Yes, Sean, there is a tip that would not involve gluing your fingers together. It would be to move somewhere else. Uh, because your suspicions about L.A. are probably right on the money. I found that when I got those chisels and I had them in the workshop here at Fine Woodworking, which is notoriously dry, the handles were constantly falling apart. Then when I got my home shop set up and I moved them home, that problem completely disappeared because my basement shop has more moisture than the shop here uh, in Newtown. So 
but I had asked Mike and Matt Kenny their opinions about epoxying, and Mike had said... Uh, yeah, throw some glue in there. Also, um, ideally, these the way the, the handle fits into the, the little socket of the chisel, there should be a gap you know, between the shoulder that's on the wooden part of the handle and the end of the socket. So that gap is really important because it allows the handle to seat even if that tenon shrinks a little bit. So the first thing I do is if you pick it up, it's a little bit loose, sort of, you know, turn it upside down and drop the, the chisel on your workbench, you know, handle down. Bang just it down. Bang it, not bang it, just so you, so you let go and it, you just sort of pop it on there. Um, and that should seat it, you know, with the on the uh, east coast because of the heating seasons the chisel handles tend to dry out in the winter and they do get a little bit loose so just sort of reseat it and you shouldn't have a problem but if it's always loose five minute epoxy just throw some in the socket stick it in there um how to keep it off your fingers when you're doing this is just don't stir it up with your fingers just use a little stick or something like that and uh, drop it in there and put it in you don't need a lot but i glued um a, a handle into a socket chisel probably 15 years ago and it's still holding strong all right there you go uh last question of the week it comes from nick and nick writes i am very new to woodworking i'm just starting to play around i've been listening to the back catalog of your podcast i listen i hear a term i don't know and then i go on an hour-long internet search binge here's my question i have a very small collection of tools quite a few are hand-me-downs the one saw I own is an early 1980s Black & Decker Cirque saw that my grandfather gave me. I quite like the used tools. I just don't know what tools you would consider buying used. For example, I'm looking into a Craftsman router that can be had for dirt cheap, one and a quarter horsepower, quarter inch shank. What do you think are the kinds of power tools that are worth buying used? So he's specifically talking about handheld power tools. All right, well... We've talked a lot in the past Drills, about, about saws, et cetera. Yeah, we've talked about machines, and you can buy machines used. It's way more iffy to buy handheld power tools. They're almost uh, sort of a disposable. Uh, what's the word for it? commodity? Items that, yeah, they're like consumables. 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 There you go. Um, the one uh, there's a couple exceptions to that. So. I think what we all would agree is most of that stuff, just buy it new. There's some real advantages to some of the newer power tools. Like, for example, routers. Old routers had these two-piece... Um, I mean, first of all, there might be a lot of problems lurking in there that you can't fix. Like, I've worn had collets. Yeah, bearings worn out. I've had collets that are rusty and they're really not fixable, but I thought the router was fine, and then I brought it home and it wasn't fine. But there's been some real upgrades to power tools also, like... New routers will have a one-piece collet and collet nut, so when you loosen the nut, the collet will pop free without you having to bang on the side of it to right. get it to lock, to come free. But they're just, you know, it's 100 200 250 bucks for these things. Buy it. You have it. Treat it really good. It'll last you for, most of them will last you for a good couple decades, decade or two. Um, just a couple exceptions. One is... I have an old chop saw I don't that I bought off somebody, and I'm still happy with it. It I don't ask that machine to do anything precision. It just it just cuts things up to length, so yeah, I can you mill, rough cut stuff. Yeah, rough cut stuff when I get back from the lumberyard, um, and occasionally moldings for the house and stuff. But yeah. I don't ask that much of it. It's a little sloppy because it's old, and when the brushes wore out, I just ordered found some more brushes from Asia online, like five bucks. Yeah, for five bucks, and dropped them in, and the machine works again. So. 
I'd say something rough and ready like that you could buy used. Um, but everything else, it's kind of just a consumable. The other thing is maybe a corded drill is so simple and they're so powerful. It's yeah. nice to have a corded drill in your shop for sure. various reasons. Especially as, as people have moved towards cordless, especially on job sites and construction. Get a good corded drill, especially the shop I use that probably at least 50% of the time. Save my batteries on my other drills for when I need them. Yeah, and don't be buying any cordless tools used. Just get those things. Yeah, because the batteries are the first thing to go, the most expensive thing to replace. And by the time you replace new batteries on a cordless tool, chances are you can get a new tool. Yep. All right. There you go. Uh, all right, guys. We get lots of comments on our page in the iTunes store. And uh, every week we acknowledge the folks who leave their commentary up there. So this week, instead of going down the list of three iTunes reviews, I thought we would focus on one. From RGR12, I have used a table saw for 20-plus years to safely rip stock. I have a three-horsepower cabinet saw, and with the right blade and the Biesmeyer fence and splitter, it is completely safe. I also have a 14-inch Laguna bandsaw, but rarely use it for ripping. There's a lot about woodworking we can all learn from, and when you emphatically say it isn't safe to rip a 6-inch wide board into 3-inch strips because you're releasing too much tension or stress, I think you whine too much. Love the podcast. But lighten up a little. Five stars. So um, this goes back to a suggestion that we often make that uh, we, we usually try to, you know, when, when it comes to ripping, um, at the table saw, we, we, we do a rough rip at the bandsaw often, and then you take it over to the table saw, and you're just ripping, I don't know, maybe... Well, the, actually, it, you're doing a rough rip at the bandsaw. At the bandsaw, that's what I'm saying. Then, then, then you're you going go to the jointer. Right. And straightening a face yeah. because it's probably bananaed on you Wonky. just a little bit. Now you go to the table saw, remove just, just a bit. sliver, yeah. and it stays nice and straight. So to this gentleman's point, it, it, it isn't always a safety issue. If you're doing right. a you know three-quarter inch thick pine board, six inches into three, no, that's not going to bind up and, and stop the blade if you have a splitter. I wouldn't say – I agree, that's not a safety yeah. issue. Um, doing the same thing to six-inch wide, eight-quarter board, yeah, there's enough force in there. I think that is a safety issue. However, even on the board that doesn't present a safety issue, it's still most likely going to move a lot, and you're going to end up with two, three-inch wide pieces that are not straight along their length. You're still going to have to rejoint them and right. re-rip them to a smaller thing. So, no, bandsaw is always safer. Um, doing it on a table saw is not necessarily unsafe, but you're still working against yourself in terms of efficiencies and ending up with, with square straight stock. That makes sense. And if you do it at a table saw, it could result in a serious thermonuclear reaction, which could result in a detonation that would destroy the entire eastern coast of the United States. Hmm. So it is a safety issue, uh, RGR-12. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm really swinging and missing this week. You guys just don't care at all. <laughs> all right. That about wraps it up this week for Shop Talk Live. We'll be back again in two weeks on February 27th, 2015 for our next episode. In the meantime, show us a little love by leaving a comment on iTunes and by all means, click that five-star rating. Don't forget to send your questions and comments to shoptalk at taunton.com, T-A-U-N-T-O-N.com. You can catch the podcast via iTunes, stream it in your computer at shoptalklive.com, or catch us on iHeartRadio. Cheers, everybody. That was a funny one.
funny one because I was thinking, oh, and then I was thinking, do we have to re-edit that last part? <laughs> and it was such an non sequitur. I didn't even know what to say. Usually, if it's so-so, I try to rescue it back. <laughs>